Shall we just take a moment to bow our heads in prayer? Eternal Father, be in our hearts now. Be in our listening and in our hearing. And speak to each of us as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter's already been talking (coughs) about the Pope's visit this week. And the media always take these kind of opportunities to stir up as much controversy as they can. And although our subject this morning of the place of women in the church has been overshadowed by more pressing and important matters, um, this subject has once again um, risen. And even the Archbishop of Canterbury, I think, mentioned it um, yesterday. It seems that when asked, about 75% of Catholics would like to have women priests. But that's something that the Catholic Church um, don't welcome at the moment. But it seems fitting this morning that we're having a look at this topic this morning, particularly as I'm preaching and Alison's being licensed um, tomorrow. So um, it's maybe something that we maybe need to have a wee look at. Since there is a tendency to read this passage in First Timothy to uphold the the, the belief that women are not to be trusted in the teaching of God's word. Especially in a educational setting, I think we need to take pains to look at how we can arrive at a conclusion about such a controversial passage as this one, with a fair degree of certainty that what we conclude is accurate. So I want to start just by looking at some of the pitfalls that we can fall into Um, in an attempt to interpret a passage like this and others. As we seek to unravel any controversial text, we must always bear in mind that interpretation isn't done in a vacuum. We're all steeped in our own religious culture. Difficult to put behind uh, behind you everything you've ever known. And in order to to interpret the word of God, we really need to step outside our spiritual heritage and read the text with fresh eyes. So one of the most difficult obstacles for any Christian is to approach the text without any strong personal biases. We have to guard against our own tendency to read into the text our own presuppositions rather than read out of the text what's actually there. It is so easy to read into a passage what we want the author to say, thereby distorting the meaning. If we want to persuade others that we're right, then a biblical passage like this one in 1 Timothy can be molded into what we want it to say. And that's a bit of a dangerous practice. And it's quite easy to see how this kind of know-it-all attitude can lead to religious hatred We live in a world where there are, you know, bombs that let off in the name of religion. Uh, And these people actually think they're right. And I came across what I think is an excellent quote that seems to sum up how this can happen by Frederick Farrar. It goes like this. My opinions are founded on interpretation of scripture. Scripture is infallible. 
my views of its meaning are infallible too. Your opinions and inferences differ from mine. Therefore, you must be in the wrong. All wrong opinions are capable of so many ramifications that anyone who differs from me in minor points must be unsound in vital matters too. Therefore, all who differ from me and my clique are heretics. All heresy is wicked. All heretics are necessarily wicked men. It is my duty to hate, malign, and abuse you. And we can see in our world today how interpreting the word of God in the wrong way leads to this religious hatred. So we really need to be conscious of our own fallibility in interpreting scripture and to be willing to take a self-critical attitude. And that's not always an easy thing to do. But we need to avoid the, the tendency to impose our own agenda upon the interpretation of any biblical passage. But there are also group prejudices. If someone disagrees with a long-established view of a passage, then according to some churches, that person's view is unsound. There's often a distinct pressure put on church members to toe the party line or be ostracized. That discourages individuals from seeking the truth for themselves. And I think there is a fear among ordinary Christians who are going to church on a Sunday morning of getting it wrong due to lack of knowledge and lack of information about the background. They haven't studied for years to, to, um, to know what the scriptures are about. Maybe that's why so many Christians tend to think they need to leave their brain at the church door. Christians often accept what they're taught without question. In other words, they never take time to employ their own minds in the interpretation of Scripture. Nor have they looked at these Scriptures objectively. Surely there has to be an element of understanding and not just blind acceptance of someone else's viewpoint. After all, God's Spirit is present in each and every one of us. But the biggest problem, probably the biggest obstacle to clear thinking on a subject like this one, um, is tradition, which still governs many of the theological debates. And it stands in the way of us looking afresh and listening afresh to biblical text. Many think that to question the traditional interpretation is tantamount to questioning the word of God itself. So they hold on to their old thoughts, which makes them resistant to reason and leads towards prejudice and intolerance. I think they actually fail to distinguish between interpretation and revelation. Revelation is what God has given us in the scriptures. Interpretation is what we conclude that to mean. One is divine and the other human. So it might be quite important to remember that distinction. It's also very dangerous to take one text and to generalize from that text. For hundreds of years, Christians have cited the Bible to prove their traditions and opinions about science, about medicine, and about theology. You may remember that Christians rejected the works of people like Galileo and Darwin on biblical citations. And they also have rejected innovations in the medical field, many different ones, 
such as the use of anaesthetic through quotations from biblical passages. And still today, Christians justify their intolerance of other Christians through the misapplication of selected scripture. So making 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 to 15, the key to understanding what the scriptures teach about women and their place in the church, and the narrow lens through which we should look at the whole Bible, distorts the overall picture, and it's not a valid approach. If we were to take that approach and generalize from the particular, we could also read Amos 6.5 to prove that God didn't approve of David's command to use instruments in music of praise. So we'd have no music group with us this morning. How many of you would be able to accept what Paul wrote in Thessalonians as God stands for all time? He said, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. And I wonder in this church where we have so many young babies and we have Ebony with us this morning, how many of you would accept that God's intended women to suffer for all time based on what God said to Eve in Genesis? I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Some people actually do believe that's what God intended for women. So many Christians labor under the impression that if they can quote scripture verbatim, then that settles the matter. And of course, there's nothing wrong with quoting scripture. But you have to make an effort to apply that passage correctly to the situation. Remember that when Jesus was in the wilderness, even the devil could quote scripture for his own ends. So if we can't generalize from the particular passage, how are we to make sure that we do interpret Scripture correctly? Perhaps the biggest pitfall is the habit of reading God's Word in a literal way and interpreting Scripture in isolation from their context. Context is probably the determining factor in trying to achieve the correct insight. Let's have a little look at the immediate context first. What we really need to do is to seek Paul's intention and to work with the text in order to hear what the original hearers heard. So let's remove our 20th century glasses this morning and travel back to the first century and stand in that situation to hear what they heard and to think their thoughts and to see things through their eyes. Let's first remember this was a letter written by Paul to Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus. The letters to, to Timothy and to Titus were written to give guidance to the pastors in Ephesus about the, um, the behavior in the church, the way to behave in the household of God. And they needed all the help they could get in this early church. In the first century, Ephesus was a large, bustling, prosperous port. It was like a crossroads of civilization. The Roman governor of the region lived there, and Ephesus had a 25,000-seater amphitheater that was used very often for blood sports. It was the religious center for the worship of Diana, the fertility goddess. 
And this massive temple of Diana, which I'm sure you will have heard of, is one of the seven world wonders of the world. It was a huge building, and people came from all over the region and all over the Roman Empire to worship here. So economically, Ephesus was a giant among first century cities. Because of its strategic location, it was the chief commercial center for Western Asia Minor. It had two harbors that brought ships from all over the Mediterranean. And its two major roads gave ready access along the coastline into other cities. Diana's temple, which was considered sacrosanct throughout the Roman world, became the primary banking institution in Asia Minor. This is a great metropolis, and these people were used to a life of refinement and of ease and of great wealth. Morally, though, the city was probably bankrupt. Ephesus was partly controlled by the educated prostitutes affiliated to the Temple of Diana and with Diana worship. Part of the cult of Diana was the use of ritual prostitution. So the Christian church here is like a little island surrounded by a sea of paganism. We forget that we've got 2,000 years of history. This is a very new church founded by Paul. It's such a short time since these converts had come into the church from this pagan background that the influence of paganism were still very strong and very insistent. There was a constant pressure from the paganism out with the small church. Many of the women coming into this church may have come from a background of prostitution in the temple of Diana. These were people who had to leave behind all that they knew in order to follow a new religion. In his advice to Timothy, Paul focuses on two distinct aspects of these women's behavior. The first in verses 9 to 10 on the way they dress and conduct themselves. Now we have to understand that over a thousand temple prostitutes transacted their business all over town. And it was the rage to look like these prostitutes. They were the celebrities of their day. I was just telling the first um, congregation this morning that yesterday on the BBC News, there was a designer on saying that all designers, because it's London Fashion Week, I think, all designers want to find celebrities to wear their clothes because when they do, they can be sure to sell them. Um, So nothing's changed. These were the celebrities of the day and the women around wanted to look like these celebrities. Prostitutes were obviously held um, in a different regard in Ephesus. So when some of the women in Ephesus were saved, they brought the dress and the appearance of um, of their world into the church. Paul is writing to let them know that this isn't acceptable. He wants them as Christians to be different. So Paul speaks to these women about their appearance, about their attitude, when they come into the house of God. One of the things they used to do is Uh, which is obvious from what Paul was saying, is pile their hair on top of their head. And these were rich women. They had jewels and pearls and gold in their hair. They wanted to call attention to themselves. And it was common for these women to spend exorbitant amounts of money on their clothes. I used to live in um, a, a village near Peterhead, which is one of the largest fishing ports, I think the largest fishing port in Europe. 
There was a great deal of money, money in fishing in these days. And the women, um, the daughters and the wives of the fishermen used to show their wealth um, in their clothing particularly. You could easily pick them out in the street. They were kind of like clones of one another, really. There was a particular way of dressing, um, but all very modern and very expensive. A great deal of attention was paid, uh, particularly by the wives, to the outfits that they wore. They wore designer outfits. They had the hats and the matching shoes and the handbag and the jewellery and everything that went with it. So getting dressed for church on a Sunday morning was a bit like a fashion parade. And I'm sure if you went to Peterhead still, there'd be a fashion parade on a Sunday morning. Um, So there was a bit of a competition going on too as to whose was the best designer outfit. So this letter to Ephesus, to Timothy, would have been just as appropriate being sent to Peterhead in the way they got ready for church on a Sunday morning. And Paul's saying here there's a better way to get ready for coming to church to worship God. Instead of being known for your clothes and your hair and your jewellery, you should be known for your works, because that's what's important about a woman coming to church. Then Paul goes on to prohibit women exercising authority and teaching in the church in verses 11 and 12, which is addressed into this particular situation. Women had been allowed to teach in church since Paul first founded it several years previously. He only forbids them to do so now in this situation. And one of the things that Paul's actually saying here is that he does want women to be involved in the public services. Jewish women rarely went to the synagogues. It was the men who went. So this is something new in the Christian church where the women are very involved. And he only forbids the women from taking the role of teacher in the congregation. They're not allowed to preach or to hold any position of authority that places over them, them over men. Now, if we think about the culture that these women have come from, these are strong, educated, wealthy women. This is probably a necessary restriction in this particular Greek church because a forward woman is automatically regarded as an, as an immoral woman. And given their background, Certainly to me, it makes perfect sense to be cautious about allowing these particular women to teach men. If we take a wee look at the wider context, if we look at the Word of God as a whole, we see a different picture altogether. At the beginning of the next letter that Paul writes to Timothy, Paul reminds Timothy that he himself learned his faith from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. There was no problem in a man having learned from women there. In his letter to Titus, Paul tells women they have a responsibility to teach other women about how to live godly lives. In Acts, we hear about Priscilla teaching Apollos, who was a very learned teacher himself. And in 1 Peter, Peter talks about how a Christian wife can reach her lost husband. This is just a reminder that women can be and are powerful witnesses to the saving grace of Jesus. But funnily enough, last time I was standing here talking to this congregation, I was speaking about Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And in there, he says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither um, slave nor free, neither male nor female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. 
But let's take a look at the example of Jesus himself. Paul's attitude towards women was particularly conditioned by the sexual inequalities of his day, but it's totally different with Jesus. Firstly, Jesus spoke with women in public. You may remember how um, disgusted, in a way, and and appalled the the disciples were when Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman and discussed theological issues with her. We read in, in Luke's Gospel that it was mainly women who supported Jesus' ministry financially. If we look at Jesus' closest companions, there we see there are women, Mary and Martha, being two of his very close friends. And Jesus can be seen teaching Mary. So Jesus had no qualms about teaching women. He freely healed women as well as men. Remember the woman who'd been bleeding for many years? And he responded to a woman's cry for the healing of her daughter. And one of his recorded resurrections is of a woman, of Jairus' daughter. So Jesus made no um, distinction at all between men and women in his ministry. But perhaps the most compelling evidence is that that she heard in Matthew's Gospel. After the resurrection, it was the women who came to, um, to the grave. They found the tomb empty. And they were greeted by an angel. And the angel said, I know who you're looking for. He has risen. He's not here anymore. He's gone ahead of you. Come and see where he lay. And then he says, go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. So the first people that were instructed to preach the good news of Jesus' resurrection were women. And the angel had no qualms about telling these women to preach the good news to the men. But that story continues. And here we see the risen Christ himself coming to meet these same women as they're running to tell the disciples what's happened. And he says to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go into Galilee. There they will see me. So Jesus himself appears and gives the same instruction as the angel Go and tell the men what's happened and give them instructions as to what they should do. So Jesus seems to approve fully of women teaching men. But for me, I think perhaps the most compelling argument is that to claim that from any one text that God has spoken his final word on a subject for all time is to claim to know the mind of God and to ignore the teachings of Jesus Jesus prayed and he taught his disciples to pray too. And Paul, the same Paul who wrote this letter to Timothy, consistently urges his readers to pray constantly for one another and for the situation they find themselves in. Are those who suggest that God gives his final word on the place of women in the church in this letter seriously suggesting that God cannot speak anew into any situation today? Are we really to conclude that God cannot and does not reveal his will for us? Or that those women who have received the call to preach are deluded and going against God's will? That seems to me both arrogance and ignorance. My hope for little Ebony this morning is that the Holy Spirit will continue to work in her from this day onwards 
and to reveal God's will to her as she grows up and learns how to be herself in the world. And I hope that we as a congregation will continue to seek the will of God for Camborne Church and for his world as a whole, knowing that God will reveal to us his truth rather than presume that we know what that is for all time. Amen.